I'm Gigi. And I'm Ryan. And we are your hosts of Diversity on Screen. I'm the comms and creative manager at A New Normal. And I'm the comms and project assistant. We are both absolute film fanatics. I did a lot of it in my degree. And we are here to take you on a journey through time via film. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye. Bye. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm excited about today's episode. So, yeah. Yeah, I know we say this every time, but I'm especially excited about this one. This is a film that I put forward for the podcast because I absolutely loved it. Then did a bit of reading about it and thought maybe I don't love it. And then I did a bit more reading. I think I still love it. So (laughs) I'll be interested to see what you think um, as we go through this journey, Ryan. So without any further ado, Waves. It's written and directed by Trey Edward Schultz, who also did It Comes at Night. Did you see that? I haven't but I've heard of it oh it is good it is very good um yeah I they're very very different films it's it's more horrific I think it's more Mm. similar to what we're going to talk about on our next episode get out about sort of making like you know doing a satire on certain you know sort of social commentary through the horror lens so it was I think you'd really like it actually so it opens with this beautiful shot of Emily cycling through these sunlit trees. Now, the film focuses on a family. So we've got the mum and dad, who are Catherine and Ronald, to their son and daughter, Tyler and Emily, who at the beginning seem like a completely ordinary sort of happy, you know, not fully happy, a bit dysfunctional, but in sort of an authentic way. And it sort of follows their journey. Because people often ask me, what's this film about? And I think it's really hard to say because you know I mean spoiler alert if you're here this film is going to be spoiled but it's kind of a film of two hearts are doing very different things but they do come together quite nicely and I think that's probably why they have the same shot at the beginning at the end of Emily cycling to sort of bring together those two halves and the other really notable thing it sort of starts from the very second scene of these circular camera angles it's got Tyler the son and Alexis his girlfriend um, in the car, listening to music with these spinning um, shots. How did you find these shots? Uh, those shots often make me feel sick. Yeah, <laughs> and there's but a they lot are of cool them. shots. There's a lot of them in this film. So yeah. you spent quite a lot of it feeling queasy. I think when I first saw it, I was like, "Whoa, I've never seen anything like this in my mm. life." <laughs> it really, really excited me when I saw that, and I sort of liked how they came through. And I sort of let, read later on that the purpose of these shots you know other than being really really cool I just sort of make the 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 audience feel like you're sort of in the center of it that you're sort of looking around and you're very much part of the story rather than necessarily just an onlooker you're someone who's looking from the inside not Mm. the outside which I quite like that's the English side the English literature side of me sort of coming out and then we're sort of introduced to Tyler's life so with Tyler sport comes first goddess which made me laugh so much because that's what his, alexis his name is in his phone <laughs> she comes second and then his family comes third and we sort of see how all of those sort of different priorities of his are sort of challenged by one another so 
we have sort of shown his relationship with Alexis through atmosphere and moments rather than dialogue, which is like a very specific style from this film. So you get sort of those iconic shots of them kissing in the water from the trailer and hands out, you know, whilst they're driving along. I don't know about you, but whenever I see like long shots of somebody driving, I just assume they're going to crash. Like, yeah, I, think absolutely. <laughs> I think I'm just traumatized probably from get out. <laughs> if they're driving for a long time, there's, I just get this real like sense of doom. So I was surprised there wasn't a crash when I watched it the first, the first way through. I thought, you know, this is all foreboding for a crash and that never yeah. happened, which is quite good because it kind of kept the tension there for me. Um, but yeah, that sort of atmospheric, style of directing is something that a lot of critics have compared to Terrence Malick. Have you seen any of Terrence Malick's other films? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Just name a few, a few. So I've only seen one. So I've seen, it's called The New World. It's sort of like a, like a new take on the um, Pocahontas story. Mm. He's done a few other ones, but I can't really <laughs> quote them as I <laughs> have right. seen them. But interestingly, um, Schultz was actually, I don't know exactly what his role was, but he was on the sets of Terrence Malick's films. And so I think he sort of absorbed that style. So Mm. his sort of, his style is like sort of defined by a couple of things. So first of all, nature, everything's always like really, really in the natural world. There's really, really long shots of just like still water or like trees blowing in the wind, like, his style of directing is not so much focused on sort of story and plot and more on sort of atmosphere and feeling, which I think is what divides this, that divides audiences and critics so much about this film. I think people who aren't into that say this story lacks plot. It's just a lot of weird shots of teenagers like running around. <laughs> Most people on the other side of the fence say, you know, he's really doing something new with his storytelling here. And yeah, I think we'll, we'll get on to how powerful that was or wasn't later on. But we first sort of see his social life clash with his family life when he goes on that huge night out and then his dad wakes him up at like the crack of dawn to go yeah. on a run. <laughs> and then he has to go to church when he falls asleep and gets in trouble. And then they go to this diner and they have that arm wrestling scene, which I really, really remembered and was in, actually intro- improvised, which I thought was quite mm. interesting. Um, I absolutely love Sterling K. Brown. I think he's such an amazing actor. I loved him in This Is Us, but I think in Waves, he really just kept, like, his acting was just at a new height. He was just, he was just, like, toxic masculinity, trying to sort of escape it, which, you know, we discussed a little bit in our episode on Shang-Chi, but the fact that he can only connect with his son or others physically. So we see that with how later on his deterioration of his relationship with his wife. He really, really struggles with that because they don't, you know, connect physically anymore. He has difficulty connecting with his daughter because they don't, you know, he can't go to the gym with her or arm wrestle with her. So I think that's why he has this sort of strength of stronger relationship with his son because he can sort of connect with him through violence or sort of athleticism. And they're sort of linked through, connected through competition that, the father, Ronald, wants to keep pushing his son further and further, but he still kind of wants to win. You can tell because, you know, they both wrestle, they both want to run the fastest. And then his son, um, Tyler's sort of mind is always on finally being able to beat his father. But then this injury sort of comes and tears Tyler's world apart. So, Quite yeah. literally tear. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> 
And um, we have that really weird scene of him and his like wrestling team just chanting, I cannot be taken down. I am in the That When that was happening, I was like, oh my goodness, I hope that's not what goes on in the locker rooms, but it probably is. It probably is, yeah. It's, it's sad that it happens. Yeah. But a lot of American high school films do portray that in that way. So mm-hmm. obviously we're not American and we don't know what it's like, but that's the outside view of most American high schools at the moment. Well, I think that's the thing. I never know how true it is. Like, do they really have mean girls? Like, do they really like <laughs> take other people's lunch money? Like, I always wonder, like, how how true that is. And I suppose we'll have to ask an American if we can find one. Um, and then after that, we sort of have the father and son finally sort of have a heart to heart. And this is like where we see that more emotional side to both of the men. So we have lines like, I'm not hard on you because I want to be, it's because I have to be. And we are not afforded the luxury of being average. We've got to work 10 times as hard as, hard to get half as far, which had you heard of that before? Because that's something that's a, a quote I'd heard sort of a lot sort of growing yeah, up. It's, I've, being in this space of work now, I've heard a lot of people say that a lot of black people need to you know, work harder to get as far as a white person does normally. So I've I've heard of the the concept before, mm. but not necessarily that quote. I think that's just always a quote I heard. I don't know if it was like my dad or my family that said that to me, probably, but it's just always something that's been like inextricably connected to race. That I think they did quite well in that scene talking about race without actually talking about race. It was kind of sort of alluded to. Because I think that can be the problem when some films with white directors do that, is that they need to use expositional dialogue because they can't allude to it because they don't know what it's like, so they can't mm. connect with it properly. But that's you know brings us to the central racial conflict in this film, is that Trey Edward Schultz is white and he is the writer and director. And he actually wrote the film before thinking about having a black cast. So Tyler, so... Um, the, the actor is called Calvin and he came from It Comes at Night. So he is the son in It Comes at Night and him and Schultz just got on so well that he decided he needed to have him as his sort of young male lead in this film and so changed the story accordingly. And that's why Sterling K. Brown had some real, you know, um, apprehension towards doing the film because, you know, the central plot point, which we'll come to later, is a sort of stereotype around, you know, black men and their white girlfriends. And also he was very worried about, you know, the the, the central thing of like, can a white man tell a black man's story or, you know, a white person tell a, a black person's story. But he said, um, he's only changed his mind on it. So I've got a quote from him. So something authentic can come of a black experience with someone who's not black at the helm, if they are willing to listen. So I think what was really special about this film and when you sort of listen to interviews with the cast is how collaborative it is. So he told every single person who was, you know, that their character, they could have some input on. So they sort of felt quite personal and quite authentic. And a lot of them have similar names. So I always mix it up. So Alexis, his real name, is Alexa from Euphoria. And yeah. Luke's real name is Lucas. I, I, I remember him from Honey Boy. Calvin, who plays Tyler, had a lot of input in his character and Sterling's character. So the, 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 the actor's dad in the film is really, really built on 
his actual dad, which is interesting because apparently Kelvin's real dad just completely rejects that. He's like, that's not me. And Kelvin's like, it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is interesting, but it's from a completely different angle. So Kelvin actually comes from a musical family. So everyone in his family is a musician. His brother and sister both got Grammys like that, you know, um, the year before he decided to give up music and sort of pursue a career in acting. So that's why, according to Sterling and a few critics of the film, that Schultz is able to tell the black story because he doesn't sort he doesn't try and do what he can't do. He had this story. He decided to choose somebody who he thought was best for the role and adopted the story accordingly. But it really does bear the question: is it right for white directors to tell white stories? And what the real question that it's all raised for me is: is blind casting as inclusive as we thought? Is ignoring race in a film the right thing to do so I think I doubt you've watched Bridgerton have you seen Bridgerton so it was a Netflix series um sort of period drama around sort of young ladies going out to society and trying to find husbands and they've got blind casting in it so a huge portion of the cast is black including the queen and it's only even mentioned slightly once they're like oh you know Um, the king fell in love with the queen and like that's changed everything in society and it really really got me thinking because when I was reading articles about this they were saying that you should not ever blind cast which I'm not sure I agree with and it was interesting because they were saying that if you do blind cast and completely ignore race then that character isn't going to feel as full or as real but I think from my perspective I don't think everything I do and everything I think is informed by my race. So I don't think that, you know, for stories where it's about that, of course it should be talked about, but I don't know. I've been kind of going back and forth on blind casting generally, because I think that's something we'll come to later on the podcast, especially under the disability section where a lot of disabled characters are played by able-bodied actors. But what what, what do you think about blind casting? I think it can work and it it can't work. Obviously there's going to be stories where, certain characters are going to need to be casted by certain people mm-hmm. and then in some other circumstances blind casting could be an amazing choice so um, it, it, i think it's in either hand really and i think that's the that's the important thing to sort of take each case sort of separately yeah i think it's uh it's interesting because from what I was reading on the other, on the flip side, a lot of people were annoyed about blind casting the other way around. So you know how Scarlett Johansson played um, an Asian character. I can't remember which one it Ghost was. Ghost in the Shell. Yes. Was that a superhero film? It was an anime, I believe, or like a manga. And they were saying the concerns around blind casting is when it's done the other way around to push people of colour and minority groups out of their sort of rightful roles. But then on the flip side you know, you kind of have to apply it both ways if you're going to take such a hard line on blind casting. And I actually think it's, for me, I think it's really, really powerful and really, really important to have films with black people in that aren't about them being black Mm. so that it doesn't completely consume them. And I think, I, I remember the first time I was told that about sort of assumed whiteness and I like, it flipped my world upside down when I realized that every book I'd read I'd assumed all the characters were white and any film I watched when a black character came on screen, I'd be like, I'd really, really notice it. You know, it'd be like if they came in with like a a crazy hat on their head, like you really, really noticed that they are black. And I think having these films about them being in love, them having, you know, trouble at school or them, I don't know, wanting to be 
I don't know, the best interior designer in the world, whatever. I think it's really, really important. And this is something I wrote about a bit in my dissertation that to remove the mark of the plural is what they call it. And by that, I mean, having one person from a single group representing their entire community, you need to have a wealth of representation. So not just only good. So what they were doing at the beginning in films is black people were only bad in films. They were always, you know, if you think of like a birth of a nation, they were like horrible, like rapists or violent or whatever. And then the sort of reaction to that was to have them to only be good in films. So then you have the sort of like, quiet sort of meat characters like um in the help like these like really really submissive passive black people and then I think now we're getting to a place where they get a wealth of roles they can be a bit troubled they can be a villain they can be difficult they can be sassy they can be whatever and I think that's why for me I think I'm I'm for having you know when the collaboration is done like it has been in this film I think it's been done well but just moving back to the plot that after the competition, um, Tyler damages his shoulder, which is when things really start to unravel for him. Alexis falls pregnant, which he has real trouble dealing with as communication is not their strong suit. That argument they have when he was driving, the anxiety I already have around characters driving in film and then literally screaming at each other. I was like, oh God, something bad is gonna happen. I can't believe it didn't, but then his drug problem starts to get worse. So he's been stealing. Did, did you realize where the pills have come from? Because when I watched yeah. it the first time, I didn't realize. So I, I kind of kind of knew in a way that, because it, it had been mentioned that his dad had a knee problem at some mm-hmm. point before that. I saw a hawk. I did not. That went completely yeah. in my head. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's like oxycodone or whatever, it was, whatever <gasps> pill he was taking from the cabinet. And I was like, that's not his. Because that, that needs to be prescribed for a pain injury or something. And he hadn't been diagnosed or prescribed anything yet. So I knew he was taking from someone. I didn't know it was his dad or whatever. I, I think it's because it's so small on the bottle. Mm. It says, like, I paused it to prepare for this and I could see it said his dad's name. But is it OxyContin? Because I've just finished... Um, Dope Sick, which was absolutely mad. I did not realise the scandal. Have you seen Dope Sick? No, I've been recommended it though so i might is it oh i'm not going to spoil it but it's an absolute amazing sort of historical deep dive into all of the controversy that surrounds that narcotic being prescribed to millions of americans Mm. it's absolutely amazing um and then finally emily sort of comes back into the story so after a big night out where he's taken a lot of drugs and he's throwing up and he's crying on the bathroom floor his um his sister emily comes in to sort of comfort him but then the heat is turned up further. We only get that second of relief. And Alexis tells Tyler over text that she wants to keep the baby, which is awful. Like there's 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 a lot of awful things you can do over text. And telling somebody that you're going to keep a baby must be up there. <laughs> and then he goes to the prom to confront her and ends up accidentally killing her, which is the sort of main midpoint of the film. Yeah, we see that how the, the violence from their first arguments translates into this. And... I don't know. I didn't think that he meant to kill her. What do you think? No, I think it was it was heated and obviously anger in the moment and rage. And he, he I don't think he processes emotions properly because mm. that could lead in from his, his father, you know, always pushing him hard to like not really concentrate on his emotions and just keep pushing. I think he didn't know how to process it all and he lashed out because obviously Alexis 
I think she slapped him first and then he just lashed out and, you know, knocked her to the ground. I think he did mean to hurt her, like maybe not like thinking fully, but you could tell from that motion that he was doing it to like hurt her. And it's not like there was someone else like there and he accidentally hit her, like he was trying to hurt her. Mm. But then you sort of, there's this horrible scene where he goes back home, he shouts at his mum, we find out that she's not actually his biological mum, she's his stepmom. And he's sort of fleeing from the police and trying to jump over the fence. And then he's in the back of the police car in these blue and red flashing lights, sort of a key colour theme in this film, slowly sort of fades. And then they come back up again and it's Emily in the car. And at first I was like, oh gosh, like, is she gone to prison? But then I think they're actually just in a tunnel or a car wash or something. And this actually happens almost exactly halfway through the film, we sort of changed to Emily's story. Um, did this sudden shift surprise you? Because I think yeah. some people think the film was going to end there. That's what Sterling Brown said when he read the script. Yeah, yeah. So I had no idea about the film going in as well. A lot of these films for these episodes I hadn't previously seen. Uh, Waves is one of them. And I thought it was just going to be about Tyler and Alexis and, you know, that dynamic and then the sports stuff. I didn't. I wasn't aware that it, halfway through it's going to flip mm. onto Emily. But I'm glad it did. I feel like Emily's more yeah. our, our kind of gal. <laughs> 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 I think at first when you're watching it, you're like, I was like, oh, like I, I, I don't relate to this guy. Like <laughs> he's just really, really angry, and I'm not sure about that. So I think that was that was probably a, quite a smart move from Schultz to sort of cover, you know, cast a wider net. Um, but it's just so sad what we see sort of in the beginning with Emily's life and like the pain of her broken family and her lack of social life and how she has no friends until we get this really cute meet cute moment between her and Luke when he asks her out and it sort of starts to become their love story and we see Emily get her life back again however from a feminist perspective (laughs) I wasn't sure about how women were portrayed in this film you know Emily is completely dependent on her romantic relationship she doesn't have anything else Catherine is you know mostly absent and mostly passive you know even though he's their biological father they're supposed to be a unit but Ronald makes most of the decisions has most of the interaction with the kids and we only see her for sort of fleeting moments and then Alexis gets pregnant and then gets murdered by her boyfriend. So all of the women in this film really, really do take a back seat. And I think that's, which I'll go on to later, which is why I had a little bit of trouble with the second half of the film, because it's kind of supposed to be about Emily and it's really not. Hmm. Um, those sort of spinning shots return and we see Emily and Luke explore their relationship through water, which is quite beautiful. Like they take a lot of baths together, showers together, they dive into lakes, they swim with manatees, they go canoeing and then they kiss under the sprinklers. And um, it was quite interesting watching an interview with the cast that 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 first road trip journey they took where they went to go see, I think they were going to see whales, weren't they? Or manatees, something like that. And they actually spent three days filming that. And I think it was maybe like 15 minutes. No, it wasn't even even that much. It was about 10 minutes in the film. They spent three days filming it. Apparently they did so much over filming for this film because they wanted to try and get a more authentic experience sort of captured by the lens. And that's what the car said was really, really different about you know, acting on this film is that you genuinely wouldn't know that the cameras were there and there was so much happening that it became sort of really, really interwoven with 
their lives, especially because their characters were based on their own like personalities. And then after this sort of remote romantic relief for a moment, I think it's probably just the happiest moment in the film, we return to the tragedy of her family with that fishing trip that she goes on with her dad, which absolutely broke me. Did you cry then? Because I did. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> I, oh, I was just... I think that's when we really, really see a new side to Ronald. And for me, that moment when she's like, so how have you been doing? And he's so surprised. He's like, me. And I thought, oh, that, that really, <laughs> I'm getting choked up talking about it. But <laughs> I think you can see then the troubles of toxic masculinity, not just from how he is treating the world, but how the world is treating him, that because he's the man in this nuclear family setup, he's not in a position to be thought about emotionally, that he sort of comes second, that he comes fourth, you know, it's his wife's feelings, his children's feelings, and that sort of, he obviously is quite keen to talk about it and just hasn't had the space to do that. So, and then this is when the film starts to sort of touch on, for me, what is the central theme, which is forgiveness. And there's that line, your brother is not a monster, he's not evil, he's just a human being. And that's, that's what really got me thinking because it's such an immersive experience in this film. You really wonder how you would react. And I really don't know. I think it'd be really you know, he's ruined their lives. He's ruined their yeah. lives unintentionally, but also, you know, by not listening to them, like he shouldn't have gone out. He shouldn't have said all those horrible things to his mum. And then this theme of forgiveness is boosted even more with Luke's major plot points. So this is Emily's boyfriend who is reconnecting with his abusive father who now has cancer and is in a hospice dying alone. And this is actually taken from Schultz's own life. And I think I could really feel that when I watched the film, it felt really authentic. So his dad was also abusive and his mum and him fled. And then his dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he took a road trip with his girlfriend to go back and sort of look after him in his final days. And that, oh, that bit of the film was really, really tough for me. I think it was just something that was so raw and... I think it was really, really interesting that the start of the film sort of suggested to me that no matter what you do, you can be forgiven and you should try and forgive, not just for them, but for yourself. Because, you know, murder and, you know, abuse is like some of the worst things you can do. And both characters are really encouraged to forgive the people who've done that to them. But what I didn't like is Emily's story being sidelined again. <laughs> so obviously this, the second half... I think was supposed to be her story. It's their family. It's the first half is meant to be about Tyler. The second half is meant to be about Emily. And it's not. But, and I think what it frustrated me even more was in an interview, um, Taylor Russell, the actress, said that the character was based on her own personality and her tendency to go unnoticed or even ignored by others because she's naturally more introverted and less hard work. And you see that with her father, Ronald, who ignores her, which her mum comments on. And then... The second half is supposed to be about her finally stepping out of the shadows now that her brother is in prison. But Lucas comes in and it's suddenly his story. And I think that's something I found difficult watching this film a second time, which I really didn't see the first, which was women always take a, take a back seat in the film. And then we move on to the final forgiveness, which is when Catherine finally looks at Ronald again. And that, that was also, I think, a very, very emotional moment to finally forgive him for pushing their son too hard. And I do think he 
did have responsibility in that. You know, it wasn't, mm. it obviously wasn't his fault, but he did have more responsibility, I think, than Catherine. And then we close with the same cycling scene that we still saw from the beginning, which I think suggested it's sort of an, a new beginning for Emily for me. And that was the film. So what did you think, Brian? Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? What did you think? Yeah, it was a, it's a really good film. Um, I was pleasantly surprised about it because I'd never heard about it, never heard anyone talk about it really um, until you talk about it really. So it was, it was great. I enjoyed it. And it's also scored by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, which is one of my favourite bands. Okay, I was like Nine Inch Nails. I was like, well, I have no idea what yep. you're talking about. Oh, interesting. Because the music was, yeah, really, really central for this film. So, mm. um, yeah, he. What, I don't know if you know this, but Schultz actually had the twelve songs, or maybe it was fifteen songs, before he wrote the script. So he picked yep. all the songs, put them in an order, and then played them whilst he wrote each section. So the music was so, so, so central to this film. And he said he kind of modelled Tyler on Kanye West in the life of Pablo on that album. Yeah. And he modelled Emily on um, Frank Ocean in Blonde. And yeah, it takes such a central position in the film. Um, in addition, because I think it's such a part of the sort of ambiance. So this is the uh, sort of other really, really interesting thing about the film is, is the cinematography style. So the cinematographer who is interesting, yeah, also a white person, just to highlight how sort of behind the camera was predominantly white, but how the storytelling is done through ambience and atmosphere rather than dialogue and plot and how there's sort of a visual language and you sort of feel the emotions of the characters rather than being told them. And yeah, how did how did you feel about this storytelling style? Was it something that connected with you? Are you in are you in the love or are you in the hate camp or are you somewhere in the middle? I imagine you're somewhere in the middle. I feel like you're normally pretty balanced in your views. <laughs> yeah, typically I'm I I am balanced. Uh yeah, but I actually did like a lot of the cinematography. It's a very nice looking film. There's mm. colours that are popping and the colours they be popping. They be be they be popping. <laughs> <laughs> but I think because the person I watched it with said that they really they're someone who's really really driven by plot and they said they found it quite boring which I thought mm. was just like shocking to me that for me there was well, when I compare it to films that have maybe more story and less visuals they're almost more boring to watch because there's not so much happening on the screen like you can almost close your eyes and just listen to it because yeah. everything's I told you not to go to school I wanted to go because I felt that you know that I thought there was just so much going on that I just couldn't even be bored for a second. Um, but there are some scathing critical quotes <laughs> on this Ooh. style. I think um, this, yeah, this quote made me laugh. Um, there is only so much value in ambient shots of people putting their hands out of the window of a moving car and dreamily unundating their palms in the, wash in the rushing wind. Waves kept me an arm length, pastel-like transition smeared across its face and asked me repeatedly, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this artistic? Isn't this important? <laughs> and I think those quotes are funny because they do ring a bit true. You do kind of see that in the film. But for me, I think I, I also kind of have a tendency to do this, like to just like, oh, like it's arty, therefore I love it. Mm. <laughs> That's probably something I should have a little bit more criticism around um but yeah um what did you what would you rate the film out of five for its quality quality 
yeah, I think maybe four because I actually really, really enjoyed it. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you did because the people that I made watch it with me did not enjoy it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a lot of the films for this podcast um, over the Christmas period the people who were accompanying, like fewer and fewer people would watch it with me as we went through them, as I think they just weren't, weren't sure most choices. But, you know, the girls that get it, get it. <laughs> the girls that don't, don't. And um, what about D&I? D&I, uh, I'm a bit conflicted with. Mm-hmm. There's obviously it does show uh, a middle-class to upper-class uh, black family and what they, they go through in days. But, I don't know how much of that is true, though. Is there a lot of that issues in in real life, middle class black families? I I don't have anything to compare it to. No, I don't either. But I think it's quite nice to tell the middle class story rather than like constantly having like someone literally struggling to stay alive in a black family. But I also get what you mean that I think the struggles that would face a boy of you know a black boy like Tyler getting running away from the police and being yeah. captured by the police I thought that was that was a moment that I thought should have been talked about a little bit more that it was sort of completely passed over that in you know in America today that would normally be an instance of police brutality like it doesn't matter that he's middle class it matters that he has dark skin yeah and I was surprised that there wasn't an incident to that or the film didn't take a moment to speak on that he was treated I guess as Schultz wrote it as a white boy running away from the police, which is something that's treated very differently. So I think that's, that's the, probably the thing with this film is that the only time it really talks to race is with that one quote we discussed earlier that you have to be twice, 10 times as good to get half as far. And oh, this is, this is what I'm conflicted as well. Cause obviously from a women perspective, it's very weak. It has black characters, but mm, Again, it's this blind casting thing where does them merely being present in the film make it inclusive? And I'm not sure it does. So I think I'm going to give it a two. That seems harsh, but I think it was really, really nice. He wanted to include the black family. But for me, that's not enough to make it a good like inclusive representation. I think it, it was nice what he did. It was nice that he talked to the cast, but that doesn't necessarily, oh, oh, I'm so conflicted. (laughs) I think for me, for it to have been more inclusive, it would have mentioned that moment with the police brutality and it would have talked, you know, their race would have been discussed maybe a little bit more subtly and not that I think it's something that consumes them, just that there were relevant moments in the film for it to come up and they weren't discussed. I think it's really, really different if for blind casting, if you've got a film, a TV show like Bridgerton, where it wouldn't make any sense for those people to be there. So you can't really discuss it from that angle. So in the same way that if, I don't know, they went to space or it's like, you know, it's a completely different world. If it was a dystopia, then it makes sense not to discuss it at all. But I think in this exact situation, it does make sense and it wasn't discussed, especially with sort of the whole interracial relationship thing and the fact that it is a black boy who kills his, even though she's, you know, she's, I think she's of Latino descent, but she's a white passing woman. I think that's not really discussed. So I'm going to give it a two. I'm going to give it a two for DNI. That was the longest answer ever. And probably a 4.5 for quality. What's your okay. DNI rating you're going to go for? Yeah, I think I would say about three for DNI rating. Uh, 
it's nice to see black people being in films and stuff like this now. Um, you're, you're kind of right about the the women factor in it. it they, they take a the women take a sideline in the film quite often. Um, so yeah, I think a three is probably probably suitable. Yeah. So overall, that give we combined, we give the film eight point five in terms of quality, which is pretty high, and five for DNI, which is fine. And I think that that reflects the film perfectly. Um, but thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.